morning again to you. So good to see you here today. And as you know, this is a pretty important day, you know, with the congregational meeting and all, and see some people I haven't seen for a while, and especially to have Pastor Ed here with us. What a, what a privilege. And uh, so I thought it might be a good idea to begin by praying, spending some time praying together. I think that's one of the most important things we could, we could do. So let, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you as our Father. We're children at best, but you love us. And Lord Jesus, this is your bride. This church is your bride. It's, it's your body. It's your house. It's your love. We are the apple of your eye. As, as faulty as we are, you love us with a, a dying love. You died on the cross for us. This church is precious. These people are precious in your sight. And this body of believers in this place, Heavenly Father, has been used by your Holy Spirit in great ways that have affected people's eternal destiny around this globe. We know that your church will be built. Jesus said that to us. So much so that there's nothing, no power on earth or beneath the earth or anywhere that can stand against you. As we see churches rise and fall, Heavenly Father, we know that you don't. You have the whole world in your hands. Father, we don't know the past very well and we most certainly don't know the future but you said when we lack wisdom we should ask of you and we do lack wisdom we ask that you Heavenly Father would grant wisdom and you say that you give liberally so I pray for this body of believers that you would grant us wisdom discernment your perspective Heavenly Father, we're part of your kingdom that you're building and that will last throughout all eternity. And we pray that your, your kingdom would be advanced through this body and what you're doing. Heavenly Father, we, um, we long for your will. We want you to direct this body into your, your ways. And so we pray for that. But we pray that we could do so together. We remember our Lord Jesus' words just before he left us, this world, that he wanted us to be one. And we have only one spirit, and so that's, that's a prayer that you can't answer, and we ask you to answer it for us, that this body would be one, unified, together, pray Heavenly Father that our agenda would be your agenda that our little kingdoms would, would, would fall and you would your kingdom would rise we pray that you would increase and even if we decrease as John said oh Father again we ask you to to bless this body as you have done for decades now and that your glory and your name your goodness, your grace would continue to go forth because of this body of Christ here. 
as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, today we're going to continue in the book of Ephesians, and the next week we're going to break. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, it's uh, Palm Sunday, and we're going to turn to the Palm Sunday, and then, of course, the Resurrection Day follows the next Sunday. Um, but uh, this week, earlier this week, I, I went to the all-knowing Google, and I just typed in this. What percentage of a normal lifespan do we spend working? That was my question, and that's easy to find an answer. Uh, the answer was provided by Lee Campbell. She wrote an article in 2017 entitled, We've Broken Down Your Entire Life Into Years Spent Doing Tasks. So here it is. The average lifespan today on Earth is about 80 years. This is for us as Americans. And you will spend 26 years of that sleeping. And seven more years trying to go to sleep. So 33 of your 80 years you will spend sleeping or trying to sleep. The next largest segment of your life, 13 years plus an extra year, so 14 years you will spend working, so 33 years and 14, and then you'll spend, this one's pretty startling, we will spend 11 years of our life, and this is going up, looking at screens. 11 years of our lives we will spend looking at screens. And looking at our food, four and a half years. Four and a half years of our life we will spend eating, which means that the number one activity in our life, apart from sleeping, is working. And so you would only expect that God would want to help us figure out how to be good workers or how to make our work life important because that is where the majority of our life is going to be spent. It's not going to be spent at home. It's going to be spent at work. Now, why do we work? Well, we work, obviously, to provide for our basic needs. We work to give us a sense of purpose. We work because we're made in the image of God. That's part of the reason we work. Voltaire said this, work keeps us from three evils, boredom, vice, and need. That's why we work. But as you know, we don't like to work. How do I know that? Well. T-G-I-F. What does that mean? Thank God it's... Why? Get off work. How about this one? Monday morning blues. Why? Go back to work. Oh, but this one. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Again. Why do we call Wednesday hump day? Yeah, it's halfway through the work week. Work is viewed as evil. People think it's part of the curse. It's viewed as something that should be avoided, if at all possible. It's called a necessary evil. By some, it's just you do it just for the paycheck. Someone saw this on a poster. The best way to look at, work, at hard work is from a distance. Or Jerome said this, or uh, someone named with the last name Jerome said this. I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Do you know what the most popular name in Germany and Switzerland is? Mueller, which means Miller. 
Do you know what the most popular name in Ukraine is? Melnik. It means Miller. Do you know what the most popular name in Slovakia is? Varga. It means cobbler. Do you know what the most, most common name in, the in, in England, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States is? Smith. Why? Blacksmith, silversmith, clocksmith, gunsmith. The majority of surnames in the Western world today are because of our work. That's where we get our names. Now this morning we're going to look at just a few verses from the book of Ephesians, the third segment of what are called the household codes. Remember from the last two weeks that the household codes were very common devices in the Roman world in which the Bible was written. They were codes written by the great philosophers and the political leaders of the society, telling people how they ought to operate in their marriage, in their family, and in their work. Because those are the three most important institutions of that society and ours as well. In the ancient Roman household codes, and they were Greek as well, they, had, uh, they, they gave instructions as to how wives should operate with regard to their husbands, how children should behave with regard to their parents, and how slaves should, regard, should uh, behave with regard to their masters. The Apostle Paul and Peter, who wrote household codes, in writing to Christians, decided to include in Ephesians, in Colossians, and in 1 Peter, household codes telling us now as Christians how should we behave with regard to marriage, family, and work. But their codes are really, really, really different. First of all, these codes are all based under the banner in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, Submit yourselves to one another out of your reverence for Christ. And then it says, What does submission look like for, for wives? And then wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, it says, this is what submission looks like for husbands. That wasn't in the ancient household codes. And the heavier responsibility is placed on the husband. It says, wives submit, husbands lay down your life. And then he turns to family. In the household codes of the ancient world, Greek and Roman, they spoke about how children are supposed to obey and honor their parents. Then, in the Christian household codes, it says, Fathers, don't you dare exasperate your children. Remember, they have a very delicate spirit, and you are there to protect their human spirit, and you are to see yourself under God's spirit in helping to disciple your children. Ooh, that's strange. And now today, we're going to come to the third household code, and this is with regard to the subject of work. It's very simple. It's just going to have a few verses in which God's going to speak to the workers and then he's going to speak to employers. But the first word we encounter in our text today is one that's going to evoke all kinds of images and deep-seated visceral reactions because the first word we encounter today is the word slave. Here's where we start. 
the Bible says here, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Now, when you hear that word slave, immediately we think of slavery in our country, and our, your reactions, I hope, as mine, are extremely negative. But here's a rule, and if you violate this, you're going to mess up the Bible massively, and almost all of us do. When you read the Bible, you never can read the Bible as to what it says to me. You read the Bible as to what, it, what God said to them, and in light of that, what he's saying to me. Did you hear what I said? If you read the Bible saying, well, God said this to me, he did say it to you, but not originally. The first thing you do with the Holy Word of God is you have to try to understand what did God say, what did he say to the original audience? And then in light of that, of course, what that means for us today. Now, when he starts this passage with the word slave, immediately you think, and I think, of the slavery that was experienced in this country. But that is not what God had in mind. And let me tell you why. First of all, in the Old Testament scriptures, we know that the Bible says several things about slavery. Human beings were not to be kidnapped or sold. That's in Exodus 21. Slaves were not to be abused, and fugitive slaves were not to be returned to their masters. That's in the Old Testament. Most people don't know that. But in the world in which the New Testament was written, slavery was common. They said there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And the slaves not only did the, were domestic servants, they were also the doctors, the teachers, and the administrators. The rich people did not really like to work. They were not the doctors. The slaves were the doctors. It, was an ex um, it is estimated that about one-third of the population of Ephesus were slaves, one-third. But they, um, they were considered part of the family unit back then. And how did you become a slave? You were born a slave, or your parents sold you into slavery for the money. Captives in war were made slaves. If you couldn't pay your debts, you were a slave. And if you wanted to improve your condition in life, like if you were homeless, you became a slave. Did you notice what was missing from that list? Race. There was no concept whatsoever of, of, of race in ancient slavery at all. This is what a commentator said about slavery in the ancient world. The slaves did not just do the menial work. They did nearly all of the work, including oversight and management and most professions. Many slaves were educated better than their owners. They could own property, even other slaves. 
They were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all but the highest economic and social strata. Many gained their freedom by age 30, especially in urban areas. Even after gaining freedom, however, they were still under obligation to their former owners in times of need. So, slavery in the ancient world was not the same as slavery in the United States of America. There was no ethnic or racial basis. Someone wrote this. His name was Alex Mann. Slavery in the ancient world was more or less rotten luck. Italians were slaves, Germans were slaves, Celts were slaves, and so on. If you were unlucky enough to be on the wrong side of a war, or your parents abandoned you, then you were a slave. And most slaves were eventually freed, because you could buy yourself out of slavery. So, slavery in America was mostly racial. In the Roman Empire, it was not. Remember, Roman society was a dictatorship, not a democracy, so there was no hope that the people had individual rights at all. And yes, slavery, ancient and modern, or more modern, was abusive and degrading, and cruelty was common. Now, bring that into the Ephesian church. Remember, most of the early Christians were from the poorer classes. They were not wealthy people. There were some, but they were few. So if some one-third of all the people in the Roman Empire and in Ephesus were slaves, and the church was composed of the poorer classes, I think it is a reasonable assumption that half of the people in the church were slaves. Can you imagine? If we were a typical con congregation, and this is probably about as many people who would be in the church, half of the people here would be slaves, or more than half. The others were free. And so, as the Apostle Paul writes this to the church that he helped to plant, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. So when he's speaking of slaves, he's speaking of more than half of his congregation. And you can probably, with good, good authority, take that word slave in our context today and put it working-class people. Working-class people is what he's saying. Obey your earthly bosses. And then it says a little bit later to them, serve them wholeheartedly. Obey them, serve them. But did you notice the text that I read did not focus on what they were supposed to do, but it focused on how they were supposed to do it, because that's the real crux of the matter. You see, God is not just concerned about our behavior. God is even more concerned about why we do what we do. Because as you know, you can behave one way and your heart is far, far away. God's not interested in that. That's called hypocrisy. God wants our heart to be consistent with our behavior. And it is not enough to say, okay, obey your boss. Big deal. Or serve your boss. Big deal. What God is interested in is how you do it. And did you hear the words? Here they are for you if you missed it. Obey them with respect and fear. Do you respect your boss? How, what if God said, because um, I, I think the, the main thing for the person who's over you at any job, you disrespect them. That's the norm. You, uh, I could do their job as well as they could. 
They don't treat me properly. They don't pay me enough. He didn't say, oh, obey them, but if you're disrespectful, it doesn't matter. God says, it does matter. Then he says, with sincerity of heart. When they give you a job and you do it, you, you say, yeah, with a fake smile on your face. No, 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 no. Do it with sincerity. And then it says, just as slaves of Christ. He says, do you realize as a Christian who you're really working for? You really, not, that's not your boss. Your boss is the one in heaven because, and he not only knows how you behave, he knows why you behave as you do. When you go to work, do you realize who you're really working for? It's easier for me, hopefully in my job, that I would remember that I'm really working for God, even not you. But that's for all of us. That's just not for pastors. That's for slaves. As you do the menial tasks or the, or the more high-minded tasks, you still, your boss is not that slave owner. It's not your employer. It's not your boss. It's the boss, the boss in heaven. Then it says, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. How often does that apply to us? You work a certain way when your boss is looking, but when they're not, oh no. You see, in the ancient world and in the modern world, workers in general were known for being lazy and taking advantage. And, and I forgot what the passage is. I think it's First Peter. It's got this strange verse, really strange. It says, if you happen to be a worker and your boss is a Christian, what do you think he would write? Well, since they're a Christian, they're a brother, you can do whatever you want. They're on the same level as you are, after all. They're no higher than you. They're no better than you. Take special liberties, right? That's not what the Bible says. If your boss happens to be a Christian, guess what? The Bible says work extra hard so that they become rich. That's what it says. Now, how many people do you know that do that? Zero. But you see, we don't have the same mindset. We come from a different world. Our worldview is different. It says, if you have a Christian boss, work doubly hard because you can make them really successful. Boy, nobody, nobody, no one in the world thinks that way apart from us, I hope. That is the way a Christian looks at because we're not working for that boss. We're working for God. And if we can prosper a brother or sister in Christ, make them rich, rather than grumbling, say, hey, I'm equal to them, I should make as much money as them, we say, oh, no, thank God I can work hard enough to make them really rich. Now, that's really weird stuff. I mean, who in the world would ever think that? And then the last thing says, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. And then it adds, and here's the reason why, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Because there will be a day of reckoning one day, and God knows everything, and he will reward you. After all, who do we work for? This week I spent a little time, or more than a little time, just trying to think through in my own mind, what, what does the Bible teach? What would the Bible say to us who are workers, 
Some of us are retired, some of us are not. Here's some things that came to my mind as I thought through this subject. First one is this. Did you notice that the very first activity in the whole Bible is work? How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created. The very first thing the Bible says is that God worked. And that's, it's part of his character to work. Remember, after he had finished creating, he said, uh, uh, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And then Jesus, speaking about working on the Sabbath, he said these words, my father is always at his work. To this very day, I too am working. And then what's God's first command to us as human beings? The first thing he says to us in the whole history of the world, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue, subdue it and rule. The first thing he says to us is work. And guess what? Work is good. Believe it or not, work is good. It preceded the fall, and it will happen in heaven. You see, work, we, many people in our world who have a, 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 not a Christian worldview see work as something that's to be avoided. No, no, work is good. Why? Because we are made in the image of the God who works. We're made to work. That's what gives us purpose and meaning and fulfills God's purposes through us as human beings. Someone's epitaph said this, Here lies a poor woman who always was tired. She lived in a house where help wasn't hired. The last words she said were, Dear friends, I am going. Where washing ain't wanted, nor sweeping or sewing, and everything there is exact to my wishes. For where folks don't eat, there's no washing of dishes. In heaven, loud anthems forever are ringing, but having no voice, I'll keep clear of the singing. Don't mourn for me now, don't mourn for me never. I'm going to do nothing forever and ever. No, you're not. No, you're not. Heaven is all about work, good work, meaningful work. Worship is work. But though work is good, so is rest. God said to us, one day every week set apart for rest. And God said to his people Israel, one year every seven, rest. And God said to his people, once in a lifetime, every 50th year, take two years off in a, in a row, the year of Jubilee. God is into rest, but our work has been affected by the fall. That's why our work is odious many times. Work is hard, it's frustrating. We do not feel fulfilled. We become isolated and we don't, there's not a connection between our work and the fruits of our labor. And uh, workplace politics, replace being productive and all kinds of things. So not all work is good. And work by definition because of sin is difficult. But we're commanded by God as Christians particularly to work hard. In fact, Jeremiah 48, 10 says this, Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. I guess that applies to me. There was a manager once who 
was asked by his laziest employee for a recommendation for another job. The manager thought hard all night for something that would be honest without hurting the young man's chances, and so he finally wrote, you will be lucky if you can get him to work for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, as from the text of Scripture, you understand, as Christians, we must never forget who we really work for. But last and most important, probably of all, about work is this. Remember, you cannot work your way to heaven. Salvation does not come by works. It comes by grace through faith. And so many, many people throughout our world and all religions teach you can work your way to God. No, we can't. I don't care how hard you work or how well you work. That one does not come by work. It comes by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work. He's the worker. We're the recipients. Well, the tables turn now for verse 9. Because the household codes, the way God put them together, they're two-way streets. Remember, submit yourselves to one another out of your reverence for Christ. So now he's going to address masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I can say, in the same way you'd want to be treated. I think that's called the golden rule. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Eugene Peterson in the message says this, Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. You see, in the ancient world, masters had all the power. God says that's not the way Christians operate. We don't operate that, that way at all. We understand that we too are under our master who is in heaven. And we operate not based on what's in our best interest. We operate what's in the best interest of our masters and in the best interest of our employees, uh, the people who, who work for us. That's what it says. Tony Evans, who's a pastor in the Dallas area, said this. If you're a boss, you're under divine authority too. Employees may be under you in position, but they are equal to you in value. They bear the image of God, so honor their dignity and treat all your employees with equity, consistently applying righteous standards to them. I did the same thing with um, uh, bosses as I did with, um, with, um, with, with employees. I went through the scriptures in my mind and what does the Bible say about this? And of course, the Bible, particularly in the Proverbs, talks a lot about workplace ethics and how, how you, we should be, uh, if we're a boss, we should be into on, honesty, not dishonesty, and we don't pursue ill-gotten gain and we're generous if God has blessed us. But as I thought about it more, I realized it's not the individual commands that God gives to employers or bosses or supervisors or managers. It's not so much the commands as it is the examples. And we have two examples that are so incredible that I have to highlight them. One is in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old Testament, it's found in this little book, the book of Ruth. For there in the book of Ruth, you find a picture 
during the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One of the worst times in the history of the people of Israel where everyone, there was anarchy. No one was following God. In that context, we read about this man named Boaz. And when you read about him in the book of Ruth, you can't believe it. Here's what you find. Here we find out, first of all, that he was contrary to his culture. His culture was an anarchy. And here was a man who faithfully followed the word of God. He was rich, the Bible tells us. He was rich and godly. And the first words that we have, it says, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. Here's the first words he says. He greets his harvesters and he says, Oh, the Lord be with you. And they call back to him, Oh, may God bless you too. That's the first thing we know about this man. He's godly and he's good to his employees. And then this, this widowed woman named Ruth, who's not Jewish, she's Moabite. She starts to glean. And gleaning was one of the methods that God had put in the Old Testament to help poor people. If you're rich, you're not allowed to harvest your whole field. You need to leave the edges and let some fall out of the bushels so that the poor can come and get enough food. And Boaz practiced this because he followed the word of God. And he wanted to care for the poor people. And, and then this poor woman, this, this widow, came and started to glean. And Boaz sets his eyes on her. And this is what he says. My daughter... Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. That's the boss. That's the boss speaking to a foreign, hated woman who's a widow and that group of people was taken advantage of and this boss does the exact opposite he spent he takes pains to protect her and to provide for her what a man and then he says this I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know before May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Here's a heavenly-minded man who was incredibly earthly good. That's how he approaches people. Can you imagine a boss like that? And then he says to, he says to his men, hey, take some of the, the things you've reaped and throw it on the ground. Give it to her. And when she goes, fill her basket full of all this food. I want to take good, good, good care of her. Wow. You want to see what a good boss looks like? A godly boss, a God who follows God's word externally in his behavior and in his heart. Read the book of Ruth, only four chapters. It's a beautiful love story. And as you know, Boaz marries Ruth. And then they have just a little tiny impact on the world because they have a son who has a son, who has a son. And that son's name is David. And he has a son, and a son, and a son, and a son, 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 son. And his name is Jesus. 
So God takes this incredibly uh, rich, this rich man who's godly, and this widowed, impoverished woman brings them together, and it changed the history of the whole world through that, that man and that woman. Stunning. There's a Christian boss. There's a godly boss. The other one, of course, as you know, is in the book of Philemon. Philemon um, was a rich person in the town of Colossae, rich enough to have slaves, and rich enough so that the church of Colossae met in his home. You see, the early church was mainly poor people. And where did they meet? There were no church buildings for 300 years. So they met in the homes of the rich people because they had enough space. Philemon was the rich guy. One of his slaves named Onesimus ran away and stole from him. Now that was a death sentence if he was caught. He fled from Colossae and made his way to Rome, tried to blend in with the big city, and there he came into contact with the apostle Paul, who was in jail. And Paul led him to the Lord. And then in their conversation, I don't know what happened, they started to talk, and Paul says, I think you need to go back home to your, your, to your master. And of course, as I said, that's a death sentence, potentially. And then Paul wrote a letter and said, Philemon, I'm, I could uh, demand you do this, but I'm not. I'm just going to appeal to you as a brother in Christ. Onesimus, your slave, is now a brother in Christ. I want you to treat him like family, not like a slave. Amazing. And we assume that Philemon did that very thing. So, where did we end? What we do matters to God because our work is the major contrib contribution of our lives, apart from sleeping, is working. And our work, and I don't mean just my work, I mean your work is your main mission field because that's where we spend the bulk of our lives how you interact with people, how you speak to them, how you work for your, your employer makes a huge difference because they're watching. We, if we only understood that our main mission field is not in this building, it's where we work, we'd have a much bigger impact for Christ. And we've got to remember who we work for. The church where I pastored in Longmont, um, I was there for 26 years, and one of the families in the church was a family that owned the steel foundry in, in Longmont. The men's, it was called the Slack Horner Foundry. Um, he, he died, the owner of it, several years ago. I did the funeral, and I got to know the family pretty well. Let me tell you a little bit of the background. In the late 1960s, when civil rights were deeply etched into our national consciousness, one of the Hispanic employees of that foundry who was prompted by a lawyer trying to make some easy money sued the foundry for wrongful termination. And so the attorney went to interview John Horner about this termination. And John responded, quote, I'm afraid I do not deal with any of the hiring and firing around here. If you want to know more about that, you'll have to talk to Don Montoya, the foreman, or Roy Lopez, the plant supervisor. <laughs> you got it. Hearing those words, the attorney simply walked out. Because both of the employees were Hispanic, Montoya and Lopez. In 1978, he received the Small Business Administration Award for the entire state of Colorado. 
and he was honored for this achievement at the White House in Washington. And in the articles written about him in the paper, he had the best civil rights record in all of Colorado. He was the number one best employer in the whole state. At his funeral, we had people share, and one of the realtors in town stood up. And he said that he was visited once by one of the Hispanic employees of John Horner, who was looking for a house to buy. And so the realtor asked the man where he would like to live. And the man responded, I'd like to live on Third Avenue. Now, Third Avenue is the exclusive real estate. It was at the time. And so the realtor asked the Hispanic man why he wanted to live in that part of the town, thinking Hispanic people don't live there. And the man responded, I want to live where Mr. Horner lives. Isn't that something? I want to live where Mr. Horner lives. That's a good boss. My father was a boss, too. My father, um, he grew up in Chicago and did, did most of his work in Chicago. And, and uh, my dad was in, in construction. He, was a, uh, he had a construction company. And one of the times he, he got involved with one of his, his boyhood friends from Chicago, and, uh, and um, they, they built the business to a certain extent, but my dad's friend um, was an alcoholic. And uh, he went on a bad binge, and he um, defrauded my dad out of some money. He lost his family. His children wanted nothing to do with him. And actually, my older brother found him drinking himself to death in a hotel room. And so my dad lost a lot of money. And this man, by the name, his name was George. He just kind of disappeared. We didn't know what happened to George for many years. But my dad was his boss, and my dad treated him well. This was in the 1980s. I was a pastor in Houston, Texas. And one day, after church, I was greeting people at the door, and this man walked up. And I said, George, what are you doing in church? look good. And I said, Tom, I've become a Christian. And this is my wife. And he introduced me to his wife. And he said, I now live in the southern, in southern Texas, and I'm attending this Baptist church, and I love what God's doing. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> He's the last person I ever thought would come to Christ. So after church that day, I, I got home so fast, and I immediately called my father. I said, Dad, you'll never believe who was in church today. George Mosby. And this is Tom, I know he's become a believer. But there's something you don't know, son. Since the day that George became a believer, every single month he sent me a check to try to pay back some of the money he defrauded from me. Not only was his life changed by Christ, but his behavior was changed as well. Again, through my, the influence of my father at work, that is our mission field. That is where we're going to have the greatest opportunity, apart from our own family, to influence people for Christ. Submit yourselves to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Whether you're a husband or a wife, a child or a parent, a worker or an employer, that's the way of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, your word is... As you say, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's stunning. 
Your word is true, powerful, but we, are, we lack power. And so, Heavenly Father, our prayer is always that your Holy Spirit would empower us to fulfill your wonderful ways through us. And may your Holy Spirit work in our lives so that wherever we are, at work, at play, at home, at school, we may represent Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.